Over the past 20 years or so, we've seen the development of approximately 40 indications for targeted therapies with an accompanying companion diagnostic. How can we continue to build on these successes and develop even more effective strategies for developing companion diagnostics and incorporating diagnostics into clinical trials? Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Our guest today is Dr. Tracy George, a professor of pathology at the University of Utah, as well as the executive director of clinical trials in PharmaDx at ARUP. Tracy, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Could you start off just by telling us a little bit about ARUP and the unique challenges and opportunities that working in such an environment provides? Many people may not be aware, but ARUP, along with LabCorp, Quest Diagnostics, and Mayo Clinic, is one of the largest testing labs in the country in terms of test volume. Well, thanks, Joe. Well, ARUP is one of the nation's largest uh, reference laboratories, but we think we're a little bit different from some of the larger labs, such as LabCorp and Quest. And that difference is due to our academic affiliation with the University of Utah. ARUP prides itself on quality client service and added value through like lab stewardship initiatives and other consultative offerings. We find that with our heavy academic background that ARUP is a really great fit for both academic health systems, but also for community health systems, which are looking for advice in the area of lab testing. Describe the relationship between ARUP and the University of Utah, kind of how it evolved, how ARUP came to be and take such a large place on the national stage. Yeah, I get this question a lot because people, it's like ARUP, Arup, how do you say this? Um, But we're a nonprofit enterprise of the University of Utah. So we're owned by the university and the Department of Pathology. And so all of our medical directors, that's both pathologists and like the PhD lab scientists at at ARUP are faculty at the University of Utah. And so the ARUP was started, it stands for Associated Regional and University Pathologists. This was started back in the 80s as a uh, reference lab. Over the years, and especially under the stewardship of Carl Schelsberg and others, now it's Sherry Perkins as a CEO, it has just grown to serve not just Utah, but really many academic medical centers throughout the 50 states. And and we actually also do work abroad as well. Oh, wow. Now you lead clinical trials in Pharma DX. Now, could you explain a little bit about what you do in this role? Yeah, this is not the typical job of a hematopathologist, which is what I am. When I came to ARUP about two years ago, I took over two business units, one called Clinical Trials and the other called Pharma DX, but both are actually involved with clinical research studies. Our Clinical Trials unit is off-the-shelf testing from the ARUP test menu. And so our customers are like pharma and biotech and contract research uh, organization CROs. Um, And PharmaDx is a little bit unique. Um, We do companion diagnostic test development and we do the really highly uh, regulated FDA stuff. So FDA regulated clinical trials, companion diagnostic test development. We also do central pathology review, which is something that I established when I came here. For example, um, centralized review of bone marrow biopsies for large hematologic malignancy clinical trials. And so 
by having these two business units, we kind of span the full spectrum of clinical trials testing from whatever, serum tryptase or whatever chemistry analyte that someone needs for a CRO to really highly specialized uh, companion diagnostic test development, for example, in the gene therapy space. And so on the, the PharmaDX side, um, it's really uh, customized uh, services. So we work very closely with biotech and pharma to develop uh, the testing for their companion diagnostic and clinical trials program. And this has been super fun, I have to tell you. Uh, very, very different than what I used to do and I still do as just kind of day-to-day -day pathology. This is kind of taking it to a whole new level in the clinical trial space. It is a very hot and exciting area, and I think it's definitely caught the attention of both industry as well as even the general public, this area of targeted therapies and then their corresponding companion diagnostics. So could you maybe share a little bit about some of the challenges that you see in this area that maybe we might not be aware of? One of the key challenges in the companion diagnostic space is that biopharma companies developing novel therapeutics may not seek to partner with a lab such as ours until the pivotal trials are already in progress or even completed. And so it's much harder to bring on a companion diagnostic later in the process. It's a lot easier to do this during the planning stages. So for some of our sponsors, especially in spaces where we're medical and scientific experts in, uh, for example, in my case, it's systemic mastocytosis. I know all the players in the space. So we've been able to, from the very start, be involved with lab testing in terms of planning the clinical trial. But even more so with companion diagnostic, you need to do this early rather than later. Um, if you want to be successful in having like widespread adoption in the case of a distributed companion diagnostic. And I think this is true and not just because probably there's a lot of pathologists listening to me, but it's always a better trial. You always get a better results when pathologists and lab experts are involved at the start of a project. Oh yeah, d definitely. I couldn't agree more. One of the first uh, targeted agents with a companion diagnostic, Herceptin, uh, the companion diagnostics were not involved, or the same ones that went to market were not involved in the pivotal trial. And I like how uh, you're you're including that that kind of that buzzword, which is well known in pharma, but is just becoming known to us in diagnostics. You know, the the clinical validation of the pivotal trial. So I and so uh, the her the IHC test for Herceptin uh, was done in the pivotal trial for for the drug, but then later had to be bridged uh, to commercially available uh, IHC and FISH tests by way of concordance. And the results were not great. Uh, so it's interesting that we're making strides in that area. And so similarly, what are things maybe that are some misconceptions out there or things that people may not appreciate? I mean, as you know, a bridging study is always going to be more expensive and the results often aren't as concordant as, you, as one would like. So I think that many folks in the field fail to recognize the nuances and technical challenges that are inherent in the development of, of novel diagnostics. We know this because we do this day in and day out, but if you have a probably a pharma executive who's maybe not as involved with diagnostic testing, they may not see 
or appreciate how difficult this is and that you really got to get it right to the start. So we're starting to see that there's a much more integrated approach um, in the biopharma world. I think this is really helpful. And you see this with some of the big companies where they've got their own companion diagnostics groups that are embedded within the company. In our case at ARUP, we're specializing in orphan diseases and, and other rare diseases because we have a lot of scientific and medical expertise in those. And in that case, we're often working with smaller companies or new players to the field. And so they're not going to have their own embedded companion diagnostic team. So they're going to come to us from the outside. And so it's always better if we start the integration sooner rather than later, because, you know, these take years to get right. If you get it wrong, you, you know, you may not have a, a good test in the end. Try to incorporate uh, the the diagnostic piece into the into the studies and trials sooner rather than later. And I've also noticed that uh, pharma companies indeed are developing their own diagnostics or pathology groups internally. Is this some of the ways uh, you've seen testing evolve? I mentioned Herceptin and imitinib for a GI stromal tumor, and CML came out uh, well over 20 years ago where testing was done largely by IHC and FISH. Uh, now, how have we seen things evolve over this time, over the past 20 years or so? As you know, there's, we're still doing FISH and we're doing immunohistochemistry as companion diagnostics. And so those are, are, are still standard players in the field. But now there's a huge trend with uh, molecular companion diagnostics that are gaining in pro prominence. And so with the advent of uh, next generation sequencing, we're seeing large targeted panels on which multiple companion diagnostic biomarkers can be incorporated to support precision oncology therapeutics. And think about in the heme space, I think of like the BEAT AML trial, which is more of a clinical trial, but where you're doing massive amounts of NGS targets, and then that's driving what drugs that you use. And so we're seeing a similar trend in the companion diagnostic field. And we're also seeing that taking place in gene therapy companion diagnostics, where patient eligibility for various gene therapy applications, for example, may be governed by the absence of pre-existing antibodies to different viral vectors. So that's even outside of molecular uh, applications. So we're seeing other platforms, uh, like for example, like ELISA-based platforms, um, looking for pre-existing antibodies um, for different viral vectors and in, in, in the case of gene therapy. So what I'm seeing now is, yes, there's still fish testing. Yes, there's still immunohistochemistry. More and more, we're getting approached about different molecular markers and then moving beyond molecular into to other um, platforms as well. It's interesting how things evolve. I think in the mid-2000s, people fell in love with sequencing. Uh, but if you actually look at the state of testing, we see we have a myriad of different uh, methodologies, such as IHC, FISH, RNA expression, RT-PCR sequencing, Sanger sequencing, and so on. NGS hasn't taken over everything we do. And there certainly are advantages to these other methodologies, such as ease of use, cost, the ability to perhaps look at things on a broader dynamic range. 
I always wonder, you know, it, it does seem rather fragmented, you know, where you, you know, if you have breast cancer, you're going to look at IHC for the hormone receptors and so on. If you have colon cancer, you're going to, going to be looking uh, for microsatellite instability by, by other methods. And so if someone were to drop in from Mars or in other industries, they might wonder, well, why, why don't we have a more unified approach to testing? Wouldn't that allow you to scale up in general and facilitate the development of, of new targeted therapies? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, but the industry by its own nature is very fragmented. And this is what's led to different approaches um, being taken towards companion diagnostic development and target validation. Um, You know, you have to have robust performance characteristics that are needed to pass regulatory muster, and that will favor certain analytes over another. And so, you know, everyone loves DNA because it's so stable for mutation detection. Versus, you know, RNA, um, I think we're getting more comfortable with it, but it's much less stable. Um, And then, like you said, we've seen this evolution in biomarkers with tests like tumor mutational burden and uh, MSI high designations being FDA approved for particular therapies, regardless of the tumor type. You know, I think in the future, we may see more robust programs like you're describing um, but for now, we're still seeing a lot of DNA and protein targets like, uh, you know, pdl one is a perfect example. It's approved for multiple different tumor types. With our ability to sequence the human genome or sequence tumors in individual patients, we have the ability to identify more and more mutations and variants, whereas in the development of the drugs and the targeted therapies, generally only a few discrete mutations uh, were tested, at least early on in the uh, pivotal trial. So for example, in uh, the uh, package insert uh, for testing for KRAS, you're looking generally only for codons 12 and 13. For EGFR testing in lung cancer, I believe about 90% of mutations are either chromosome 19 deletion or the L858R mutation, you know, which allows a very robust approach to testing. I think it's somewhat human nature to want to identify every and all mutations you possibly can or to make these therapies available to more and more patients. But, you know, but as we're able to do so, are we perhaps going to water down our ability to, to do effective trials? This is a really good question because it's a balancing act and it's a high stakes balancing act because you've got a lot of money involved in this. You have patients uh, who are waiting for efficacious treatment. You could only run so many trials, especially if you're doing things like uh, orphan diseases. So from the perspective of a company, there's potential that if you broaden your cohort of treated patients, that could mask the benefit in a very important subset. If you spread it out too thin, you know, you've got too many, too many subsets and you can't power it appropriately. That's dangerous. You could do careful subset analysis. Um, you know, often, you know, you're working hand in hand with the FDA when you're planning these trials. And so they will be giving you very pertinent feedback. Sometimes it is better just to choose a few targets where you know you can adequately power it than to try and cover everything. Now, that, of course, patients are very upset by that. From the pharma company, you can see where they want to have a trial and they want to have a, a positive result and not be stuck in this. We, we didn't have enough patients to power that subset appropriately. 
I've kind of seen this from from multiple sides as well. Now, taking off your hat of uh, developing diagnostics and put on your hat of being a professor of pathology, where you're actually signing out cases in the real world with actual patients with actual disease, what do you do then? We know the genes, KRAS, EGFR, all these tumor-related genes, but believe it or not, you can have benign or uncertain variants in these genes. So you're, and it's quite common, you're putting quite a quandary when you're signing out a case and the patient has a variant perhaps of unknown significance in a tumor-related gene. Yeah, so how do you handle that? Yeah, so we take these cases to our molecular tumor board so that we can get multiple experts in the same room talking about this. Uh, and also prepare adequately for this. And most, I think, academic and other you know, healthcare systems have these molecular tumor boards, and I think they're incredibly valuable. And this is where the value comes, where you can talk about these, because the literature is changing all the time, and it all depends on which database that you're looking at to see whether the variant is of uncertain significance or someone has reported something else. I think that's where you get the best minds together and you make a decision on a case-by-case basis. If you do this, you're going to get the best result for the patient. I think that's obviously what we're all looking for is the best result, uh, getting the right target, getting the right therapy uh, to the right patient. Now, as we refine our abilities in molecular diagnostics, I know uh, cancer is obviously getting a lot of the attention, a lot of the funding, a lot of the uh, publicity. Uh, but do you think now that we're going to we're going to be able to move into other areas of disease, particularly inflammatory conditions, metabolic diseases, and other things where we could potentially uh, develop targeted therapies with companion diagnostics? Yeah, I, this is really kind of ARUP's sweet spot in the rare disease uh, space where we've done this with uh, different gene therapy targets and like looking at mucopolysaccharidoses. We've developed a test, this is in conjunction with uh, BioMarin, where we can determine if a patient has a pre-existing antibody. The idea is that if a pre-existing antibody to a viral vector is present, that patient um, may not do well with the, the with the gene therapy drug. And, um, and given how expensive these treatments are, you want to have a high degree of success. We made that announcement at ISTH, I think, at the end of last year. We're really right in the heart of these rare diseases, you know, the, the mucopolysaccharidoses, you know, one through seven, and that's um, a large area that we're exploring and developing companion diagnostics for. I absolutely, it, it's more than just cancer. I'm seeing this in, um, in these other types of disorders, and I think we're going to see this expanding, especially with the FDA's um, HDE program and the way they've defined a pathway to help companies help patients with rare diseases. We're going to see more of this. Well, that is very encouraging. Now, Tracy George, this has been fascinating. So thank you so much for coming on. And before we wrap up, I just want to ask you a few more things. You've been involved in some clinical trials surrounding the uh, novel coronavirus, which I think is uh, very exciting and very timely. I think it's it's very hard to make sense of this tsunami of information that's coming out of the media and even some of the preprints from the journals. It's hard to know what's true, what's real science, what to believe. 
I think the bedrock of clinical medicine and, and advancements in the field is, of course, the controlled randomized trial. And outside of that, I'm not sure how we can make much sense of it, but you have been actually involved in prospective randomized studies for treatments around uh, coronavirus. So could you tell us a little bit about, about uh, what you've been involved with and what you've learned? Yeah, this is pretty fascinating because this is really hot. A couple of weeks ago, I was approached by the chairman of our department, uh, Dr. Peter Jensen, saying, look, the University of Utah and Intermountain Health want to do a uh, prospective controlled trial in hydroxychloroquine for patients with COVID-19, and we want you to coordinate the testing. And this was in a time it's difficult to get testing supplies. It's difficult to get collection kits. It's just a lot of different players involved in trying to make that happen. We took the approach of working with the PIs, this is like Rachel Hess and Adam Spivak, to come together and really plan a good trial with several hundred patients. My job with my team was to make sure that the testing was smooth, that it was going to be accurate. We managed to do that and plan something that was really good. Because testing has been so difficult across the U.S., same for us here in Utah, is I had lots of investigators at the university and beyond approaching me about getting piggybacking on this trial. And so what we decided was to take a very broad approach and have a well-planned study we would collect multiple different types of samples, including blood and, and patients are consented as well for genetics. We wrapped in these new PIs um, into this one large study. And because we were able to do this, we brought in folks from California as well as other states. And so we hope, I haven't seen the results yet, that we'll get really good data and not just these small trials like what came out of China and France, um, but something that where we can really definitively say, yes, this drug is effective uh, in this subset of patients, or no, it's not. We also had inquiries from other PIs who were interested in other exploratory endpoints. And as part of uh, the consent process, we're collecting uh, blood and other sample types, as well as doing genetics. Um, we were able to collaborate with PIs in California, um, PIs at other institutions. And so we hope that we're gonna have some really meaningful data that comes out of the study, both the primary endpoint of whether hydroxychloroquine is helpful, but also numerous exploratory second, secondary endpoints, such as, um, you know, why are some patients sicker than others? Um, you know, we'll be able to look at their genetics, look at the different complement levels. Um, it's really been fascinating being a part of this from the very beginning. Yeah, I think it's important to emphasize that no matter how urgent or dire a situation is, that the foundations of clinical research still very much apply. And it's very interesting uh, to see what we've been able to do in such a, a relatively short time. Now, uh, last question before we go, I'd just like to get your take on uh, what you see for the future in diagnostics. Do you think we've entered a golden era? As many people are positing, are we going to replace uh, historically, what has been high-value uh, therapeutics? Are we going to move to an era of high-value uh, diagnostics? We've recently seen the close of a large 10,000-patient uh, uh, clinical trial focused solely on a, 
a diagnostic, which I believe was the first of its kind. So what do you think the future is going to look like? Um, I think this is a prime time for diagnostics right now. Um, and I think you are absolutely right. This is going to be high value diagnostics. I mean, there still will be high value therapies and, and we're seeing that right now with, uh, with gene therapy. Um, we want to talk about a high value, uh, but we're also seeing how diagnostics are incredibly important. And I think that rare diseases, um, including gene therapy are key areas for medical advances as, where, as well as oncology and um, assessing things at DNA, RNA, protein at different levels, you know, depends on the disease um, or diseases. And I think through diagnostics, we'll be able to select patients who are most likely to benefit from particular therapeutic approaches and improve outcomes overall. Yeah, this is the time to be practicing pathology. It's very exciting. Well, that's wonderful. Tracy, how can folks learn more about you and ARUP and the University of Utah? Yeah, we're an academic institution, so we're always open for collaboration. Contact me and, uh, you know, just check me out, Tracy George and ARUP, and they'll find me on the web. Our guest has been Dr. Tracy George from the University of Utah and ARUP. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.